Hello, you're listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. As always, we have an exciting show for you this month. I will be revisiting biosignatures and assessing the future prospects for their study. Hugh will discuss updates from NASA's TESS mission, and Hannah covers the most recent exoplanetary news. But first, let's meet our exocasters. So my name is Andrew Rushby, and I study planetary habitability and the early climate of the Earth at NASA's Ames Research Center in beautiful Northern California. I'm Hugh Osborne, and I'm hunting for transiting exoplanets from the Laboratory of Astrophysics in Marseille. And I'm Hannah Wakeford, and I study the atmospheres and clouds of exoplanets using mostly the Hubble Space Telescope. So, first off, Andrew's going to expand on some of the previous discussion and delve into more detail about biosignatures. Yes, thanks, Hannah. So, regular listeners may recall that I originally introduced the concept of biosignatures back in episode 5b. Uh, and I've touched on it a couple of times since then. Uh, But I want to take this opportunity to revisit them as an abundance of papers on the topic have recently appeared on the archive. This is no coincidence because these papers are a product of a workshop on biosignatures that was organized by Nexus, held at the University of Washington in summer last year. And uh, I think I gave a a short report from from that, that conference as well. So these will appear, hopefully, as a review series in an upcoming issue of Astrobiology, pending peer review, so keep an eye out for that. However, I wanted to give you a little sneak peek summary of some of the outcomes of the workshop, the conclusions of the paper, so you can impress your friends with your preternatural knowledge of biosignature research. You know, all the cool kids kids are doing these days. Uh, So starting at the beginning... What is a biosignature? Well, very simply, it's any substance that can be used to infer the existence of past or present life. And in the context of astrobiology, this generally means gases in the atmospheres of planets that are produced by life, uh, and that can be detected using spectroscopy, i.e. by analysing the spectrum of light from that planet and determining which bits are missing, so to speak, as uh, different molecules absorb light in different and sometimes very distinct portions of the electromagnetic spectrum. So, for example, if we see a strong absorption feature at like 0.76 micrometers in the infrared, we can infer this as the presence of atmospheric oxygen absorbing radiation at that wavelength. We can then also look for other features if we have the spectral resolution to confirm the presence of oxygen, such as maybe weaker absorption bands at 1.26 micrometers or detecting its photochemical byproduct ozone, which has strong bands in the UV and the visible and the mid infrared too. Um, And oxygen at high atmospheric abundance has always been thought of as a pretty good smoking gun indicator of the presence of life, as nearly all the oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere is made by life, either terrestrial or marine photosynthesizers. You know, algae, yay. No one really thanks the algae. We often thank trees and plants, but, you know, algae makes up a significant portion of our oxygen. Delicious, delicious oxygen. So we should thank them too. Anyway, slight aside. Um, So if we combine um, oxygen and methane atmospheric signatures, this is even a smokier smoking gun, as oxygen and methane are in disequilibrium in the atmosphere, which means that, you know, they don't, they shouldn't be there at the same time. One is an oxidizing gas, the other is a reducing gas. So they want to react rapidly uh, with each other in the presence of light to form water and CO2. 
So methane on the present Earth is made by methanogens. These are bacteria that exist in anoxic environments, like mainly the guts of cows, uh, and in sediments at the bottom of oceans and lakes. Uh, some methane is also produced through volcanic and hydrothermal processes too. So the minor constituent in our biosignature um, campaign, our search, which is methane in this case, but would have been oxygen during the Archean or many other times during the early history of the Earth, would be quickly stripped from the air. So finding methane in the atmosphere despite an abundance of oxygen, or vice versa, would likely mean that both of those gases had to be continually replenished, um, and that life is usually thought of as the source of that replenishment. So you might note from the, the tense, the past tense choice of my words, that this picture is perhaps not no longer the case. So insights gleamed from studying the oxygen cycle on the Earth, its past abundance, and how life and the, and the atmosphere have co-evolved have somewhat muddied the, this tidy picture. And this confusion comes in the form of both false positives and the more elusive false negatives. Uh, so an example of the former, oxygen at high abundance might not only be caused by life. The atmospheres of planets orbiting smaller red dwarf stars could contain significant amounts of oxygen that is produced by photolysis of water vapour and CO2. So when you know, powerful or, or, or high energy starlight splits those, those molecules apart. Modelling shows that this could be facilitated by the vaporisation of the oceans of that planet and the subsequent loss of the light hydrogen from the top of the atmosphere, which just leaves the O2 behind. You know, recent studies into photodissociation of CO2 could also occur on these planets, and that depends a lot on the UV spectrum of the star, the environmental context, uh, and also how well the, the processes that would allow the, the carbon monoxide and the, the oxygen radical to rapidly recombine afterwards, and how well those are repressed. So methane, as I mentioned as well, is, is also spewed out liberally from volcanoes and from seafloor hydrothermal vents, albeit in, in a smaller amount, but the abiotic sources of methane as, as, um, as, a, as a gas cannot be ruled out either. So the smoking gun is, I don't know, getting less and less smoky now, unfortunately. It's cooling down. But false negatives are interesting. So a false negative for the oxygen biosignature, which is what I'll focus on here. There's, there's lots of others, and I do recommend having a look through the, the review papers. They're written in a, a somewhat accessible way, some of them anyway. Um, so they, they provide a good overview of this, but I like to use this as a good case study. So the false negatives for this particular biosignature are pretty tricky to account for, as we know from the history of oxygen on the Earth. So oxygenic photosynthesis evolved in cyanobacteria somewhere around 3 to 2.7 billion years ago, with lots of arguments around exactly when, and then the first oxygenation or measurable oxygenation of the atmosphere occurred around 2.5 to 2.3 billion years ago, which leaves as much as 500 million years or so accounted for if oxygen was your target biosignature gas. Life was making it, but the atmosphere was just not maintaining the signal. So the implications is that the ratio between the oxygen and the methane has always been really in a state of flux throughout the history of the planet. And for much of the, the history of the planet, it, the, this canonical biosignature would not have been detectable. So if you were an alien astronomer and you were looking at the Earth during the Archean, you might think, oh, you know, no oxygen or low oxygen means probably no life. Or, you know, methanogens, which, yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> Uh, so the reason for the, the delay between oxygenic photosynthesis and the actual oxygenation has been also, you know, uh, an area of debate. 
but it's probably because the surface of the environment of the planet was very reducing. Uh, a lot of that early oxygen was was mopped up by photochemical reactions with methane, or uh, or by exposed iron deposits on the surface to form banded iron formations, which we find all over the world in assemblages dating from this period. Or more likely, it was it was gobbled up before it even made out of the water column. So it took a long time to build up. So the question was, how do we deal with these these ambiguities? It's not as, as clear a picture as we thought. And the way forward seems to be rooted in Bayesian probability, as, uh, as many things in science currently are. It's, uh, it's a very cool methodology, and we like to use it for many applications as we can. Because it's, it's very applicable here, because it's unlikely we'll ever receive a definitive signal of life, short of a message that reads, hey, we are neighbours from Proxima, what's going on? Why haven't you visited us yet? But even this, I think we would all view with some extreme scepticism. So there's, there's never going to be a f- definitive, definitive signal. So a probabilistic framework intended to reduce that uncertainty and express a likelihood that a given planet is inhabited in terms of confidence levels, um, ranging from maybe like very likely to very unlikely, has been suggested. So to make this assessment, we, we need to use a exoplanetary system model or suite of system models with data uh, in the form of, you know, information about the the properties of the star system and spectral or photometric data to find the Bayesian likelihoods. So if you're not familiar with this with this particular uh, methodology, to evaluate the probability of, of a hypothesis being true or false, you specify some prior probability, like a, a best guess, which is then updated to a posterior probability when you have new relevant evidence to add to your calculation. So in the context of our biosignature studies, our prior knowledge might be built on um, uh, theories about how life originates on the Earth and how all the factors that influence habitability, which I've which I've covered before, um, and the properties of other exoplanets that we've already characterized. We then might need to know some stuff about the environmental context of the of the planet that we're looking at, stellar parameters, the planetary system data. We'd also use data from our, our hypothetical models um, to look for false positives. We'd maybe produce some synthetic spectra or photometry. We'd then hopefully have some data in transmission or reflectance spectra. And that would feed into our likelihoods, and we'd put that all together with our prior probabilities built up from our knowledge of life on Earth and other planetary systems to to make a posterior probability, is the theory. So I guess the obvious problem then is how to set the priors, because these are only going to be as good as our models or as good as our observations, and these are all still lacking a little bit at this stage. However, I still think it's probably the best way forward, um, because... Just like habitability itself, biosignature detection is is fraught with uncertainties, and at this stage, it's better to think of it in terms of like a spectrum of likelihoods, you know, as opposed to like a definitive yes/no answer until we can do until we can do better. So, in terms of the future directions, uh, working within that framework, there are like two obvious strategies that we can employ in the development of future missions. Uh, the first is to maximize our confidence that a given observed signal is a product of life. And the second is to maximize our confidence that a given observed signal is not a product of life. So they're not necessarily mutually exclusive because, you know, I, I guess for, to answer either of those, you just need to be observing a single target for a long period of time. And we might expect that over that time, um, observations of an inhabited or uninhabited planet would increase or decrease the likelihood, while subsequent observations, you know, would, would only strengthen that. So that sounds that sounds easy. Let's let's get to it. But there, I mean, there's still a multitude of, of of problems bound up in those statements because it's not entirely clear we totally understand life on Earth. 
yet, particularly um, constraining the probabilities about life actually emerging in the first place, the origin of life problem. Um, so the prior for this one is is huge. But all is not lost. You know, field and, and lab studies are underway to understand this process. And I think in a future episode of Exocast, I'm going to discuss origin of life studies in a little bit more detail. Um, and of course, future telescope missions are also um, looking pretty good. And these might provide some long duration observations that we need. So as I think he will discuss in the, in the next segment, tests will be launched next year. Uh, and this will play a primary role in, in surveying the transit signals of nearby short period terrestrial planets, including maybe some habitable planets, which we can then verify with ground-based radio velocity, velocity measurements because they'll be pretty bright. Uh, also, ESA's uh, KOPS telescope will provide more measurements of, uh, of radii down to maybe even sub-Neptune size because it has a ultra-high photometric precision and this will boost our understanding of how um, the crucial mass-radius relationship of close and terrestrial planets um, will operate around low-mass stars. Uh, and hopefully this will also be further improved by Plato during the 2020s. So in addition, the host stars will be hopefully better characterized through astro-seismology, uh, which are like earthquakes on stars, which is pretty awesome, uh, and further observations of the high-energy radiation with maybe Hubble, um, which is Hannah's favorite, will also contribute to our understanding of, of stellar activity. And then, of course, we have JWST, which will allow us to follow up on those observations using transmission spectroscopy or eclipse spectroscopy or phase curves, if we're lucky. Um, and, you know, even maybe a few transits will hopefully show some distinct spectral features, diagnostic of habitability, and maybe even perhaps a biosignature. Hannah shaking her head. I'm skeptical, too. Um, <laughs> uh, so during the 2020s, maybe the powerful WFIRST telescope will, will offer the first directly imaged observations of maybe habitable zone cool giant planets, maybe down to like sub-Neptune size. Again, Hannah's skeptical, but she's always skeptical, so I'll ignore her, her nodding and shaking head right now. <laughs> Let's be optimistic, especially if it's coupled with the starshade, which I don't know if that's been, that's been um, decided yet. Uh, it might even be able to image, you know, directly uh, Earth-sized planets in the habitable zone with a starshade. That's what people are saying. I don't know. Furthermore, we've got the extra-large telescopes or extremely large telescopes, like ESOS, Extremely Large Telescope, EELT, uh, or the 30-meter telescope in Hawaii if it gets built. Uh, and once these are packing their second-generation coronagraphic instruments and, and their spectrographs, we could uh, get some direct detection of scattered light from habitable zone planets around low-mass stars once those go online in the 2020s, which will be pretty exciting. So I think it's clear that the detection of life across these distances will be super difficult. One of, maybe one of the most difficult measurements ever made. I'm gonna throw it out there. But we now think I th that powerful instruments, you know, are complex and well-developing, well-developed modeling campaigns and fieldwork studies and lab studies, and just some careful rational inquiry should make an answer to this at least possible in the next few decades. So the future's bright, but the light is mainly scattered. Thanks, Andrew. You're right. I am always very skeptical of these things, but I think that what you outlined was very, very clear. And that's, that's something that everybody kind of has to get behind. And that's where I become skeptical because I don't know that we have, as human beings, we're, we're, we scatter. Um, I, I feel like having that grouped understanding is what's really key here because 
there is a spectrum there isn't a yes and no answer but we we love the black and white and that's this is the most gray area that there could ever be yeah absolutely yeah so it's it's really it's just uh that's why i'm so skeptical but and I, you like to be skeptical it's all you know humans we like to build stories and narratives right even when they they don't necessarily exist and put things into night neat tidy little packages um which is why i think you know thinking about things in on a spectrum is is probably the best way to go with this yeah i definitely very likely agree with that. very unlikely i think they stole that well we stole that from the, uh, the ipcc <laughs> you know where they say it's very likely we're going to destroy the planet it's very unlikely we're not going to destroy the planet i like those kind of those statements <laughs> you know because it's up to people to decide how how you know what to do with that info so, uh, as I mentioned during my segment, Hugh is now going to tell us about uh, a very exciting upcoming mission called TESS. What have you got first, Hugh? Yeah, that's right. And I, uh, I guess I might end up pouring some cold water on your uh, speculation a little bit as well, because no. I'm coming at it from a more sceptical <laughs> side myself. But, uh, but no, it, it, it's, um, it's an interesting mission it's that NASA are in the process of, of, well, they've finished building it now. It's going to be launched in, in uh, next year, I believe. So yeah, so what is it? It's um, it is a transit hunting telescope. So you might immediately think, oh, it's it's Kepler two, or well, I guess we already have Kepler two. It's Kepler three, um, but it's actually extremely different from Kepler. Um, so in three main ways, one of them is that it's much cheaper. So it's uh, cost only about two hundred million dollars, whereas Kepler in twenty seventeen money is something like six hundred, seven hundred million. It's been in development for a lot shorter, so only about. Uh, less than five years, whereas Kepler took about eight years to be developed and, and launched. And it's a lot smaller as well. So about one third of the mass of Kepler, which was a thousand kilograms, whereas TESS will only be 350. So what? how does that design differ then? I mean, Kepler was a big telescope, far from Earth, pointing at one small region of the sky for a very long period of time. TESS, on the other hand, is smaller, it orbits Earth, it it's got a very large field, and it only observes each of those fields for a short period of time. So I'll cover each of those points in detail. But, okay, so it's smaller. How much smaller? So um, the cameras on TESS are actually only 10 centimetre in size, compared with the one-metre mirror of Kepler. So these are a different ballpark completely. Uh, although TESS does have four of these little cameras. So with a much, much smaller aperture like that, we're actually collecting a lot less light from the stars. And therefore, the precision of how... Uh, how we, we monitor that light varying is much less. The precision of, of being able to detect transits is much less. So this means that TESS is nowhere near as sensitive as Kepler on the same stars. But luckily, TESS isn't really looking at the same stars because that downgrade in size means that it can go much wider. So each of those fisheye lenses covers something like 24 by 24 degrees. And so with all cameras, the field is something like 20 times larger than the Kepler field. So TESS can go for a lot brighter stars that would have been too spread out and too bright for Kepler to actually focus on. And that means that it gains some of that sensitivity back by just looking at these much brighter, much more photon-rich stars. Some of them even maybe naked eye stars. In terms of the, the time, so TESS is going to observe 26 different fields over its two-year mission. So that means each of them only lasts about 27 days, which is far less than the four years that Kepler has been observed in its initial run, or even the three months that K2, the Kepler secondary mission, was observing for. So one thing that the team did decide to do, however, was to have one camera permanently pointing directly north or south. These are the ecliptic poles, as we call them. And this will mean it misses some of the sky, but it also means we get 
13 times longer coverage for one patch of it, enabling more data, smaller planets, and more long period planets in those regions. And the key to this decision isn't just to gain small planets. It's also because these are the areas where James Webb is best suited to observe. So any planets that Tess finds there can be characterized by J James Webb. So we really want the small, more Earth-sized planets in those regions. And the orbit is kind of funky too, because it blasts off from Earth on a SpaceX ro rocket early next year, and that's been slightly delayed due to SpaceX problems this year. Um, and then from low Earth orbit, it's going to head basically towards the moon. It's not landing, of course, but it will receive a gravitational kick from the moon and get thrown into an eccentric orbit where it will eventually adjust into an inclined 13.5 day period, which is resonant with the moon's 27 day period, making it stable. And that eccentricity also means that for most of Tessa's orbit, it's far from the Earth and can image happily in the dark of space. But then for three hours each orbit, it passes extremely close to Earth enabling it to downlink all of its data much more rapidly than we can do with, say, Kepler. And then it can begin observations again as it drifts back away from Earth out to Apogee. So what, what's TESS going to find? What's it going to do for exoplanets? Well, basically lots of planet candidates. So in a paper by Sullivan et al. last year, they, they looked at the 200,000 stars that it's going to study in detail. And basically we can expect 2,000 planet candidates from those 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 stars. So that's, that's you know, a pretty hefty amount given we only know about 4,000 planets at the moment. But in the 2 million stars that are also observed in the full images it's Tess is going to send back, that number increases to a whopping 25,000. So that includes something like 17,000 hot Jupiter candidates, uh, which, which absolutely dwarfs the number we currently know by something like 50, 60 times. And in fact, Tess is going to detect almost every single transiting hot Jupiter within a few hundred light years of us. So it, it basically make, makes ground-based telescopes like WASP and HAT and KELT almost pointless after that, which I'm a bit annoyed about as someone who works on uh, some of these projects, but oh well. That number will also include a few thousand Neptunes and super-Earths and a few dozen Earth-sized planets, so around 50 terrestrial-sized planets. And these will be around bright stars as well. So unlike Kepler, this will allow follow-up and characterization in numbers that exoplanet scientists have really only dreamed about. So what problems are there? Um, I said I was going to pour some sceptical cold water on, on, on it, and I think this is where I'm, I'm going to do it. So one of the big problems is that the pixels on TESS are huge. So for Kepler, the pixels were about four arc seconds across. So an arc second is, is one three thousand six hundredth of a, of a degree. And TESS's pixels are something like 25 times larger in area. So that basically means there's 25 times more chance that there's another star within the pixel that we're, we're studying the light from that could have another star in it and could, could have a, an eclipsing binary or something that's causing the transiting effect that we think we're seeing on the primary star. So with Kepler, this probability that another star within the pixel was causing the, the, the dimming, like a false positive, was actually really low. And that's what enabled Kepler to generate something like more than 3,000 confirmed planets without much other data, without radial velocity, without uh, transits from the ground, all of this. So with TESS to confirm most of its planets, we're not going to be able to do that, I don't think. We could do it for maybe a few of the more obvious candidates, but actually for, to give us actual confirmed planets, we're going to need a lot more follow-up information from the ground. But again, luckily, these planets are going to be around far brighter stars than Kepler, making follow-up uh, such as radial velocity or repeated transits with something like Kops, 
much, much easier. So we should be able to confirm a large majority of these planets. Uh, another issue is that TESS is a lot more noisy. So it's got smaller telescopes and there's a lot more noise in the detector. So we're not going to be able to push down to low, like small planets like Kepler was. In fact, around stars like the Sun, which Kepler focused on, TESS is limited to only seeing Neptunes and Jupiters. And the 27-day field duration also means the majority of those will be on searingly hot orbits, with periods less than a couple of weeks. Where TESS will flourish, though, is for smaller stars. So it's going to observe many thousands of M-dwarfs, which are far smaller, and therefore allow small transiting planets around them to be much more easily detected. And for these cooler stars, it's going to detect rocky planets Earth and super-Earth size in abundance, with something like more than 500 terrestrial planets, potentially. And the proximity of the habitable zone around those stars also means many of them might have liquid water on their surface if they are indeed rocky. Although, as we've discussed before in Exocast, those low-mass stars may also prove relatively problematic for any life. So if you're holding out hope for a terrestrial planet around a sun-like star, you probably have to wait well beyond test to find it. So something like Plato or other techniques such as radial velocity or direct imaging. But for the sheer number of planets and for a handful of really interesting planets around M-dwarfs that we can characterise with things like RVs and with James Webb, then TESS is, is going to be amazing. It's going to produce a lot of interesting candidates and planets. Thanks, Hugh. That's interesting. I, um, I mean, the Kepler spacecraft isn't in, isn't in great health at the moment, as I think we all know. So a lot of, the, a lot of good work is being done in kind of the, the pipeline area, the, the, the post-processing bit to re- reduce some of the the noise and uncertainties is can we do stuff like that with with tests to to get down at some of those ambiguities uh the, the current sort of um estimations of what planets we find are kind of built on almost the best possible idea of what we can do to make the noise the systematic noise that is you say in, in kepler has been a problem how we how we can suppress that so these right. these simulations basically assume we'll be able to detrend, we'll be able to get rid of all the that noise, and we'll be left with white noise, or, or maybe something just slightly above the, the intrinsic noise that the star puts out. Um, so if anything, those numbers will get probably worse if there is similar problems with, with test data as we see in K2. Ah. Um, so we have to wait for Plato, and I can't imagine why you'd be touting that right now. <laughs> <laughs> What do you mean? Not, bi- not biased uh, at all. No. Oh, yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> None of us have any bias towards anything, Andrew. No, of course. <laughs> the, the, the saying, the man who spent 15 minutes on biosignatures. <laughs> That's what I was tasked to do this, this month. <laughs> Simple as that. Just pulled it out of a hat. Pulled it out of a hat. <laughs> sure. And it's been a short but busy month of Exoplanet News since our last Exocast. And reporting from our international news desk is Hannah. So can you bring us up to date? Yeah, so we talked a lot in the last segment about Kepler. And our first announcement for the news this week comes straight from them. Their final catalogue of the original mission. And for a statistics mission, it has a nice list of numbers associated with it. So the Kepler mission, the original mission spent 1,464 days on its nominal mission. So that's, like you said, four years and three days of active duty, staring at over 1,500, no, 150,000 stars. 
which is uh, pointed in the direction of Cygnus and Lyra. So this month, as part of that final announcement, 219 new candidates were announced in the eighth data release from the mission's team. In total, the mission produced 4,034 planet candidates, with 2,335 already confirmed to be planets. Now, out of these, there are 50 near-Earth-sized planets in the habitable zone of their stars, 10 of which were added in the last month, and 30 of which have been further verified. So there's a lot of things in there. There's the terminology and differences between candidates, uh, verified, and then actually confirmed planets. And I believe that Hugh covered that in a previous uh, podcast. But what's really amazing about the statistics mission is the statistics itself. Most recently work is being done looking at a gap that has been found between rocky terrestrial planets and small gassy Neptune-sized planets. The bo- there's a bimodal size distribution of small planets orbiting within 100 days of their star, where there are peaks at 1.3 and 2.6 Earth radii. And this apparent gap between the two is being called the evaporation valley. And this valley was previously predicted by numerical models um, and with the latest catalogue, it's, it's increasing the evidence that the photoevaporation can collect planets into these two uh, categories of bare cores um, and those that have double the core radius size where they're able to hold on to an envelope or, of material. Essentially, they describe that in the planetary assembly, there is a definitive split in small planets where the heating phase occurs. So small planets form, they acquire their gassy envelope uh, based on their core radius. Those with larger cores are then able to maintain that gassy envelope once migration or heating is occurring in the system, whereas the smaller planets lose that hydrogen-helium atmosphere through a number of the different methods that Andrew actually described earlier. Um, And uh, you would then end up with these heavier, denser atmospheres behind, which uh, could possibly be like Earth uh, or Venus, more likely. But it's through the warm evaporation models. um, They struggle to account for the planets that orbit greater than 50 days, which is interesting as well. So there's a number of constraints that are placed on these, um, this bimodal distribution that we're seeing. But there's still, uh, there's still, like I said, appears to be a lot more we can learn from this Kepler result. This is the final catalogue result from Kepler, but it's not the final verification stage. It's not the final confirmation of these planets. We're going to be hearing a lot more from Kepler. It's just it's they're not doing this specific type of um, database analysis system, again, for, for the Kepler candidates. Um, and... What we're trying to really do is determine the origin of these distributions that Kepler's showing us, these different types of planets, where we're finding them, and the radius relationships between them. So hopefully, as we've been discussing, using TESS, we'll be able to gain a little bit more insight into these sizes of these planets, because TESS is going to find the same size planets, um, but ones where we can actually do follow-up observations of the composition of their atmospheres. And we can use that data to really look back at the Kepler sample and extrapolate from population statistics studies um, with both of those kind of combined together, which is really, really important moving forward with exoplanets. 
But in unrelated uh, and interesting news, scientists uh, led by Eamon O'Gorman from the Dublin Institute of Advanced Studies used the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, uh, ALMA, in northern Chile to produce the most detailed and resolved image of a single star other than our sun. That star is Betelgeuse, and it's in the constellation of Orion, one of the most common and recognized constellations around the entire globe. Um, even if you're in the southern hemisphere and it's standing on its head, you recognize Orion. And Betelgeuse is the bright, deep red star in the top left, as viewed from the northern hemisphere. And it's been subject to intense interest for a very long time. Um, I said before that it's big, but what I mean is really, really big. It's 1,200 times the size of our sun and would swallow up the orbits of the solar system planets almost out to Saturn. So that engulfs the entire terrestrial world, the asteroid belt, and even Jupiter. So it's a really massive star. And what's exciting about this image that they've managed to produce, other than it being the most detailed of any star, um, is that the star's not spherical. There appears to be a large bulge protruding out of one side. Um, Betelgeuse itself is nearing the end of its lifetime and it's losing its mass. And the scientists are trying to understand why and where it's losing this mass. Betelgeuse is likely to end its lifetime in a supernova. And the amount of mass that it loses before its supernovas will determine the types of elements that it's going to form in this dramatic end-of-life explosion. And elements that make up all of the things on the Earth, well, almost all of the things on the Earth, originated in supernova explosions, similar to what Betelgeuse will undergo. So understanding how and when this might happen for this star will improve our understanding of the origin of natural elements in the universe and a complex but very lofty goal of the team is really to uh, try and understand how stars like this actually form the elements that make up uh, everything else that is forming now. So I mean you can twist anything back to exoplanets in the end I think is what I get from that one. Um, but to bring us back to exoplanets and another string list of numbers for you, um, the HST Cycle 25 selections were just announced and the full list of selected proposals for the upcoming year of Hubble observations is available online. But I wanted to give you some statistics on this year's call for proposals uh, and what's been going on with Hubble observations. So there were 972 observation proposals requested, which requested over 23,300 orbits of Cycle 25. Now, this is compared to the 4,750 orbits that are actually available. Way oversubscribed. Um, and there was uh, 182 archival research, archive legacy and theory proposals requesting approximately $17 million. And that's four times the amount that is available for those categories of, of science funding. So Hubble proposals are incredibly oversubscribed. But what does this mean for exoplanets? So out of the all of the proposals that were submitted, 13% of those were in the planets and planet formation category, which covers exoplanets and disks. And this accounted for 16% of the orbits that were requested. Now, break this down. Uh, the UK comes in second for the number of submitted proposals after the USA, 
But with California and Maryland, the states topping the list and even submitting more than the UK does as a total. Um, all of this can be found on the Space Telescope Institute uh, webpage, and they've got statistic sheets for each of the cycles. So you can go back and look at how this is changing over time uh, and how many orbits are available each year and how that changes and why. But another fun tidbit from this document is that a majority of the proposals were submitted using a Mac computer, not even closely followed by Linux systems, uh, not to mention how low Windows systems were on that graph. Um, and since 2012, no one has used a Sun OS system to submit a HST proposal. So win one for the planet on that one. Um, and finally, the hacking group Anonymous say that NASA is about to announce the existence of aliens. And my father insisted that being covered in the news, so I covered it. We're done. Excellent. It's been an exciting month. Um, it really has. It's been a short one, but exciting. Kepler's original mission is over, but the work is going to continue. And there's so much to try and find out what that data means. Betelgeuse has got its portrait taken, and we're going to try and learn a little bit more about that. And the HST Cycle 25 announcements have given some very nice uh, news to lucky observers out there. So it's been a good one. It has. I mean, I have to admit, it was quite emotional. I was at the, the Kepler K2 science conference this past week. And uh, yeah, the wrap up talks were, were quite emotional. You know, you can, you can really see how, how connected humans and their technology are and what it means to people when, when these things close down. But as you say, this is not going to be the last we hear from, from Kepler. I mean, it finished three years ago and we're still hearing plenty of, plenty of new information from it. And with K2 still doing some great work, there's a lot more exciting stuff to come. Oh, definitely. But to finish off, more exciting things. Uh, Hugh, it's your turn to adopt an exoplanet into our wild and wacky family. So who are we welcoming this month? We are welcoming Kepler-37b, which is the smallest exoplanet ever found uh, around a main sequence star. So I had to add that. I just remembered that there's, there's, a, there's something smaller around a white dwarf now, but never mind. Um, so this was discovered by Tom Barkley in uh, et al. In, in 2013, and it has a radius of 35% that of Earth. So this is seriously tiny. So if you put it on a, uh, a compared it to the solar system, it's smaller than Mercury, it's smaller than Ganymede, smaller than Titan, and it's also smaller than Callisto. So it's it, it, it it's seriously a tiny world. Although it is larger than the Moon, so. Um, and it's larger than Pluto and Eris, so we can we can safely call it a planet at least. Um, so it, it's kind of right at the limit of what Kepler could observe. Um, so it's it, it's only causes a twenty parts per million uh, dip in the light curve of this star, which is four times less than an Earth-sized planet would. And it's only actually four sigma detected. So so in terms of um, just how shallow this transit is, there's a, there's still some questions over how how uh, confident we might be about this signal. But given that there are two other planets in the system, and these are slightly larger at 0.7 and 1.9 Earth radii, then this inner planet uh, appears much more likely. And also it's in a resonance with those two other systems. So, so there's really no doubting its legitimacy as the smallest exoplanet yet found. Uh, it's, it's even hotter than Mercury on a two-week orbit around a K-type star. So meaning it's uh, likely extremely hot, something like... 700 Kelvin, uh, but still, it's I think it's a remarkable planet to add to a growing remarkable bunch that we've adopted. 
little runt of the litter. Yeah. So what what are the other planets in in the system? Did did they lend uh, believability essentially is what you were trying to say to this tiny planet? Yeah, I think if we just saw that smaller dip on its own, we wouldn't be entirely sure if it was a planet. But given that there are when there's a system like this, then there we see three planets all in the same inclination, all in the same sort of orbital plane, and we see these um, resonance between the orbits, like we see in, in the Trappist system. Then it's it's pretty it's pretty certain that, that those those planets are entwined in in, in this, this system together. Do you think Tess is going to be able to do something similar to that? Yeah, I think I, I mean for multi-planet systems where we already have one or two planets in a, in a, in a system you can push the uh, detections a lot lower than you might otherwise be able to because you are boosted by those other planets being there in the probability of a signal being real. Yeah. So that's certainly one way that tests could get down to, to small planets, yeah. Thank you so much for joining us for another exciting installment of Exocast. Next time, Hannah will talk about the Observing Transiting Exoplanets with JWST workshop, which is happening in early July at the Space Telescope Institute. Hugh will talk about exoplanets in the era of extremely large telescopes, and I will report on the month's exoplanetary news. For more Exocast, if you just can't wait until next time, you can always check out our previous shows on our website, exocast.org, and on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. Until next time, bye! Bye. See ya. Exocast.